0: A college board course on African-American history has been rejected. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Florida's Department of Education has rejected an advanced placement curriculum on African-American studies, saying it indoctrinates students. We examine their reasons and what it means for K-12 education. Next, we take a look at Florida's Office of Election Crimes and Security. One reporter says the special unit is not living up to the hype. Finally, Riviera Beach in Palm Beach County has spent hundreds of millions of dollars to reimagine its city and its name. A reporter from the Palm Beach Post provides insight on the developments. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup. I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Florida's Department of Education recently rejected parts of the College Board's advanced placement curriculum covering African American studies for high school students. In a tweet, the Commissioner of Education, Manny Diaz Jr., objected to scholarly contributions from black writers and academics, citing examples of what he calls woke indoctrination masquerading as education, and that the state would come back to the table once the board revises the course to comply with Florida law the state's stop woke act restricts how race can be taught in the classroom what are those restrictions and why is it deemed inappropriate by the state Joining us to break down the state's objections and the historical challenges of teaching Black history is historian, educator, and executive director of the A. Philip Randolph Institute, Dr. Tamika Bradley-Hobbs. We have Brian Knowles. He's the manager of the Office of African, African African-American, Latino, Holocaust, and Gender Studies in the school district of Palm Beach County. And we have WLRN's education reporter, Kate Payne. Thanks, everyone, for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, I'd like to break down what was rejected, and then we can move to the more broader perspectives. Uh, Let's start with WLRN's education reporter, Kate Payne. Kate, what were some of the subjects the state objected to?
1: Yeah, so Governor Ron DeSantis and the State Department of Education pointed to instruction on black queer studies, prison abolition, the reparations movement, uh, black feminist thought, intersectionality. um, And some of the writers and and thinkers that they flagged specifically were Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, Kimberly Crenshaw, and others. Um, I think it's important to say the college board that oversees AP courses has been pretty tight-lipped as far as what is in the curriculum at this point. Um, So we don't have a lot of information about it. but previous reporting on the course says you know it's it's not just focused on the history of the African continent and chattel slavery in the U.S., but also movements for civil rights and and just the the black experience in America, culture and music and literature. So
0: yeah, and these some these are some huge writers and academics in the black African American canon. Uh, there are people working and teaching in the marketplace of ideas. The Florida Stop Woke Act is an acronym. That stands for wrong to our kids and employees. <laughs> Kate, what, what sort of impact has the policy had in the classroom so far? Or, what are you hearing from educators?
1: Yeah, and so, again, that's the state law that restricts how um, racism and, and discrimination can be taught, you know, banning. Um, students from being made to feel guilt on behalf of the actions of others, um, but what I'm hearing from educators is, is that they feel afraid, that they feel intimidated, um, and, and they also put this in a larger, longer context of, you know, many feeling that the teaching of African-American history was inconsistent and insufficient long before this. Um, you know, I, I talked to one educator who says they've been waiting four years for this AP course Really looking forward to it, and for the opportunity to teach African American history in their classroom as an academic discipline. And this is such a blow for them. Um, it's it's an insult, and and they also brought up um, this connection that they see between the lack of understanding of African American history and the black experience and a direct correlation to how black students see themselves today. And that's a really important part of this.
0: And and we'll talk about that specific guilt with Dr. Hobbs later on in a segment. Uh, This controversy touches people outside of Florida as well, obviously. Uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker slammed our state governor, Ron DeSantis, for his decision to block the African American AP course What was Illinois governor's message to DeSantis and the college board?
1: Yeah, so Pritzker wrote a letter to the College Board warning them not to bend to DeSantis, not to uh, rewrite the curriculum to appease him. Um, And this is critical because, um, you know, a key aspect of AP classes is it's a high level of coursework um, and and it's standardized across the country so that universities across the U.S. can grant college credit to students who um, are really successful in these classes. Um, and it's important, I think, to note the College Board has run into similar censorship issues um, earlier uh, with activists targeting books that are taught in AP courses, including the works of Nobel Prize winner Toni Morrison. And so the, co- the College Board has said you know, they stand against censorship, and they've said that if schools ban required instruction in these courses, that they will not get the AP designation.
0: Thank you. And before we get to Dr. Hobbs later in a segment, I'd like uh, to uh, uh, present a slight correction. Dr. Hobbs is the library regional director of the African-American Research Library and Cultural Center in Fort Lauderdale for Broward County Libraries. Dr. Hobbs has has been uh, an integral part in, in um, teaching African-American history. Uh, I do want to segue to Brian Knowles. Uh, Brian what does this rejection of the AP course mean for the teaching of African-American history more broadly in Florida and specifically in Palm Beach County?
2: Um, definitely uh, from a broader context and specifically here in Palm Beach County, uh, it does rise concerns, not only because of you know the AP course, considering that AP course is something that we didn't have in place. Um, the concern is like, what do we have in place already? How do we proactively protect what we have and what is the possible, almost imminent danger of close examination of what we teach and how it can be interpreted as, as critical race theory or something that has de- del- deleterious effects um, on students.
0: Yeah, and, and and Brian, Black History Month is right around the corner. People expect to come across topics on social media surrounding black perseverance and excellence to issues like housing segregation, redlining and banking discrimination not a lot of consensus on how the government should address these historical issues. What are some of the challenges you come across when you're creating a curriculum around black U.S. history?
2: All right. One of the things whenever we develop curriculum is making sure that we present a well-balanced, uh, authentic perspective of black history. Right. So you want to really kind of incapacitate the authentic experience of what we have experienced here in the United States and abroad. But what happens with these, these these new state laws that we are facing, it, we create, it creates the challenge of how do we depict our history, illustrate the history without taking away or subtracting from the authenticity of the history, right? So making sure, you, like inevitably there are parts of our history and segments that are very ugly and very despondent, which is not our entire history, obviously, but those things actually happen. Right. So how do we still approach those particular topics without violating state laws is a huge concern. Yeah, you said those things actually happen.
0: Huge difference between facts and theories. And and it seems as though that's where some of the mix up is. Are you seeing more community groups, churches and individual families taking on the job of educating kids on this history by themselves? There's definitely
2: been uh, mobilization within the community of really trying to go back to a more collective approach of preserving our history and culture within a community. Um, There has been a lot of of dialogue of how can we preserve our history, how can we continue to tell our stories uh, within a community, right? Really going back to our churches, going back to our community centers, and really just coming back together as a village, uh, which is something that we've lost post-segregation within our community.
0: Now, Mr. Knowles, the common complaint that I've heard from many parents and students across the US is that when it comes to teaching black history, specifically in public schools, many black leaders such as Martin Luther King are often reduced to pacified or simplified versions of themselves Um, MLK's overall message, for example, is often reduced to, I have a dream speech and content of one's character, but rarely any of his more nuanced thoughts on economic empowerment, thoughts on crony capitalism, and class differences, and other, quote, radical thoughts. Uh, Have you heard this common complaint, and how do teachers address that concern under the state's supervision?
2: um honestly we haven't heard those complaints um because we all kind of deal with some kind of de- deficiency from our education about our history right so most people are not even aware of the real radical dr king for example right and there are so many other countless examples uh, in our history which have been kind of reduced to make them more palatable for the general public um, but those are one of the things that our team continues to do uh, right here within my department is to kind of reframe those histories uh so it's more authentic once again. Um, So that has not been a common complaint because most educators that we know and most even general public, uh, because we all have come through a a system of education that has not really centered or included our history.
0: And Dr. Hobbs, um, have you heard that common complaint about the pacification of MLK and and are you seeing uh, families uh, take education on their own hands?
3: Yes, um, I think that over the last several years, you've seen a real increase in the number of Black families that have opted to school their children at home. Um, here at the African American Research Library, we provide resources uh, to those families. I, I think it's really important out of all of this uh, to note the fact that the, what is missing in this conversation are the needs and desires of Black families. And, and Black children. Um, so much of this controversy and the, and the focus has been on protecting um, White children uh, from the imagined guilt that comes with learning as, as Mr. Knowles says, the difficult facts sometimes of Black history, but we also need to be able to provide those facts. We're simply telling the truth. These are factual things that happened 100 years ago, uh, the, the town of Rosewood was decimated uh, here in in the state of Florida. Um, we need to talk about these things. Um, so I think that what you'll see um, from us uh, here at the African-American Research Library is a dedication to that. I will say um, we are facing this right now. We have in our building today and tomorrow, Jerry Craft, who uh, has stands out as the winner of a Coretta Scott King Award, a Kirkus Award, and a Newbury Award, the first graphic artist to be able to uh, win that award, but he was actually disinvited uh, from a school visit today, um, much to our disappointment. And for us, it just really stands uh, to to demonstrate um, the way that this is spreading. But we are dedicated here at Broward County Libraries to ensuring the freedom to read. Uh, freedom of speech and freedom of thought. Um, but this is this is where we are in our society
0: today. Dr. Hobbs, I keep bringing up the phrase market of ideas and you just mentioned the phrase, phrase the freedom to read. <laughs> uh, from banned books to education gag orders, the government seems to be dictating at their discretion what and how students should learn about topics surrounding race and history. Last year, the federal judge at one point temporarily blocked the law on first amendment grounds in terms of censorship do students have the right to receive information so that they can be exposed to different ideas or have a a broader understanding of how people come up with various concepts
3: uh, absolutely. I, I think at one point in our society, we agreed upon that. Certainly there are laws to govern. Certainly there are governmental bodies and experts that are charged with reviewing this. But we have now seen um, these traditional paths of approval um, and ratification being usurped by governmental bodies. Um, and, and I would use the phrase epistemic injustice where we use the power of government, the the places of power, people who have power, to invalidate, uh, to silence, and to exclude um, certain thinkers and certain bodies of knowledge. Uh, Again, some of the people that you've named today, Angela Davis, uh, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, other folks who have appeared on these lists, like Bell Hooks, uh, these are well-respected authorities and thinkers and writers who have... Writers who have proven um, within their fields of expertise, as a valid as as evaluated by their peers, um, have been demonstrated time and time again to be some uh, of the most important thinkers uh, that we have produced on these shores. But to usurp those powers and uh, that assessment, and use the power of legislation to to silence, to to remove their books, to prevent them from being taught is a is a very dangerous development
0: in my mind. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576 to join this particular conversation. And you can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Mr. Knowles, I mean, you heard what Dr. Hobbs had to say about this what is the impact of this on all students of not getting this sort of deeper understanding of themselves, their complex history, and each other?
2: It's definitely creating a lot of anger amongst these students because the very thing that we're hearing as adults, stu- students are hearing it as well. Um, it's very frustrating for students who feel like they weren't getting their entire history or wasn't included enough just within a traditional public school setting. But this right here creates more anger, more frustration. Uh, among our students around these particular topics.
0: Uh, let's talk about language here. Um, teaching about black historical injustices in the United States, particularly here in Florida, has obviously become more po- uh, politicized. Some of the prevailing sentiment behind the Estoppel Act is that teaching certain concepts or theories related to race provokes a sense of guilt among some white Americans. Um, Mr. Knowles, to, to Dr. Hobbs point, what are your thoughts surrounding that particular narrative about guilt?
2: Um, that's not a narrative at all. Um, that, that I completely, when I say not a narrative, I mean, more so that's a false narrative um, from working with teachers and also working with Kate, you know, students K through 12, and specifically some of our secondary students whether our middle and high school. Um, that has not been a, a reality at all. Um, and some of these courses that we currently have um, here in Palm Beach County, and and even, you know, some of the conversations that I'm hearing even amongst other groups of non-Black students is not a, a concept of guilt at all. Um, it's more so just a call to action. Even when they hear about some of the, the darker parts of the history that actually happened once again, a lot of these, these, these uh, students have no guilt about hearing these stories right it's, it's one of those calls of action or how do we how do we do better you know even though these are my ancestors who have committed these horrible crimes of injustice um against your people it's more so how can i be a co-conspirator how can i be an ally um in a fight to to improve this overall condition
0: and, and, and kate uh um when will the college board release its framework of the course
1: yeah, so they announced that they'll be releasing that official framework um, on February 1st, the first day of Black History Month. Um, and they've not said that this uh, release is in response to the actions by DeSantis, um, but we'll, we'll certainly see as that comes out um, if the governor and, and the Department of Education think it aligns with state law and um, what, what that course could look like across the country.
0: Um. Dr. Hobbs, let's talk about language here. Um, Education also involves the appropriate use of contextualized language. Uh, the, The black slang phrase, stay woke, was used for many years as a way to tell people to simply be conscious about one's history or an untold story. But the phrase, stay woke, has been hijacked by the political landscape, erasing its original meaning. Is there some grand political ideology behind the use of the word woke? In the multi-ethnic Black community,
3: um, I, I don't think it is so much that as as um, as strategy um, and a tool uh, that we've seen before. It is the weaponization of terminology. Um, it is giving something people something that they can wrap their their minds around and remember. Uh, it's, it's, uh, an act of, I would say, cultural theft in some ways to take something that has meant something very positive and was created in one community and then turn around and use it as a weapon, um, to take the word woke and create the acronym war against our kids and employees. Uh, you know, there's a lot of strategy in that and it's very powerful strategy. Uh, and it's very unfortunate that, uh. Um, simple things like learning and reading and uh, having classroom debates or even being exposed to African-American history have been just caught up in the swirl. The other piece of this linguistics debate, I have to say, goes back to the statement that was made, uh, this phrase, and I quote, that this course significantly lacks educational value. Mm. Those words land tremendously heavy when you talk about Black history, and un- let's be clear about this, the other thing that has been weaponized in these debates is the idea of critical race theory, which is something that is real, that is valid, that has been developed, as I mentioned, in the halls of higher academia, uh, in juries of peers and experts, and has been deemed valid and of value. But that has now been taken into the public realm and weaponize. And in that weapons, weaponization, what is more dangerous is the fact that people don't actually know what it means. And because they don't know what it is, they are more broadly attacking black history. Um, and given the, the very difficult and beautiful history that we've experienced, I uh, speak as a, as a daughter of these shores, uh, primarily my ancestors are from um, the South and South, Southern America. Um, to now have to fight these battles all over again not not only do we our ancestors survive them uh, but now we are being banned from even talking about them uh, it's a really really peculiar place to exist uh
0: mr Knowles, uh dr hobbs said some pretty interesting um statements about the sort of weaponization of critical race theory um uh, just to clarify for folks who are listening to this program um, is, is critical race theory, uh, part of the curriculum that you create?
2: <laughs> no, absolutely not. And just like Dr. Haupt said, it like, we're using certain terms completely out of context. Um, and you use them in broad context, specifically dealing with African American history, right? We don't really hear the same narrative surrounding any other history, right? Cause this is, it seems like this sounds like a very specific targeted uh, anti-black attack. Um, And just like, you know, like Dr. Hobbs said, you know, you're using it in context of of African American history, which is going to be completely erroneous. Um, I, you know, only develop curriculum with full accuracy and fidelity, uh, which is going to actually be backed by state standards and benchmarks, and just making sure that I keep authenticity intact. Um, And just like you say, you know, we have a beautiful, but yet, you know, we have a dark history um, in this country, and, you know, making sure that I can capture the entire experience Of African-Americans. And unfortunately, there are are, are, been some horrible injustices committed against African-Americans by this country. Right. But that, you know, does not serve as as a way to justify calling it critical race theory. Um, It's just a part of just the overall experience that we've had. And I believe that all children should have the right to know that.
0: And Dr. Nose, I'll pose the same exact question that I posed to Dr. Hobbs about the weaponization of certain phrases, particularly black vernacular. Uh, stay woke. You're around young kids who have used that term in very different ways. Uh, what What are your thoughts about that term being hijacked in the political landscape?
2: It seems like it just in the political landscape of cultural appropriation uh, once again. Um, is using a term that we've always used within the community. Like it's not like a new term, you know. It's relatively new uh, within mainstream media because of just the politicalization of that term. Um, just it's just as you said, and just like Dr. Hobbs said, it's just a hijacking of just some of the language and colloquialisms that we use within the African American community, um, and using that as as a weapon against us, and using it as a weapon to perpetuate to further perpetuate the psychological distress and violence that we commit against black children in the classroom by robbing us from being able to to connect with our history and culture
0: Dr. Hobbs is the regional director of the African-American Research Library and Cultural Center in Fort Lauderdale for Broward County Libraries. Brian Knowles is the manager of the Office of African, African African-American, Latino, Holocaust, and Gender Studies in the school district of Palm Beach County. And Kate Payne is WLRN's education reporter. Thank you all for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Still to come, a reporter says the Florida's Office of Election Crimes and Security is in shambles. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus and welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Despite a smooth 2020 elections process, a broad consensus across the political spectrum, Governor Ron DeSantis created the Office of Election Crimes and Security to investigate investigate election fraud and other crimes. Secretary of State Cord Byrd last year told WLRN, quote, additional security was a priority of the administration.
4: We can look around the country see different things that are going on, see things that we could do better, quite frankly, and try to correct those. But what I want to assure voters in Florida is that when they go, that our laws are followed, that they're secure when they go to cast their ballot, that our infrastructure is secure, and where people are breaking the law, we're going to investigate it.
0: In August, state officials announced they were charging 20 people across the state with alleged voter fraud. But six months after its creation, a new report shows that the unit's first big case has collapsed. Of the 20 arrests that were made last summer, four cases have been dismissed and there has only been one conviction. Joining us to talk about the struggle surrounding the special unit is editorial page editor of the Sun Sentinel, Steve Bosquet, and Adam Goodman, criminal defense attorney and a former chief of. Of litigation. Thank you both for joining us.
4: Yes, thank you. Thank, thank, thank you.
0: Uh, Steve, let's start with you. As you've mentioned in your reporting, the Office of Election Crimes and Security has no director and most of the 15 full-time eligible jobs are unfulfilled, uh, unfilled. Uh, if there isn't a staff equipped to run this office, why is the Secretary of State proposing more funding?
4: Yeah, you know, I don't know. No, I mean, uh, he made a presentation to a legislative committee this week on that very point. I think considering the climate in Tallahassee, he's probably going to get what he's asking for, uh, I would think. But uh, but he didn't last year. So, I mean, of course, it wasn't him. He was not the Division of Elections uh, director a year ago. Um, Mm -hmm. They they, as I pointed out in my in my article in the Sun Sentinel, um, they they've made one case and the one case is fraught with many problems. Um, Mm -hmm. there's even another case of a gentleman in Tampa who was charged with voter fraud, who's decided to seek a jury trial. And that case is going to court, going to trial in early February. Um, this, as our column pointed out, uh, this unit lost a lot of its momentum when, uh, sadly Pete Antonacci died uh, last September. Antonacci, a lot of people liked Pete Antonacci. A lot of people didn't like him. But the point is, uh, he was a very forceful, strong administrator of that of that agency, uh, and had a very diverse, very you know, good background in elections law, law enforcement, worked for the attorney general's office, and so forth. They're having a very, very difficult time finding another person with those skills. Yeah,
0: Pete Adnachi has worked in so mm. many different levels in the state government, <laughs> and to your point, was uh, a guy who was um, polarizing in terms of being well liked and and not well liked, but. Um, Rest in peace to to Pete Atanachi. in that regard. Um, Who is investigating these
4: cases? Uh, Well, here's how it worked. Uh, And this is why they're having problems uh, in courtrooms all over the state. These cases were referred to the Office of Statewide Prosecution in Florida, which is basically a a, a multi-jurisdictional investigative agency that's technically under the attorney general's office. OK, the attorney general is, is Ashley Moody. She's independently elected. She was just reelected in November. And um, however, by statute, anything that the statewide prosecutor investigates has to be what is known as multi-jurisdictional. That is more than one judicial circuit. An example would be Broward and Dade, Broward and Palm Beach. They're, 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 in, they're in different uh, uh, judicial circuits. These cases are not in different judicial circuits. These cases are all in about four or five counties individually. Some are in Broward, a couple were in Miami-Dade. Um, I'm going by memory here. Were several were in Hillsborough County and a couple were in Orange County in Orlando. So on procedural grounds, never getting to the merits and the substance of whether voter fraud was committed, some of these cases have been thrown out of court because these cases should not be being handled by the statewide prosecutor's office. They should be being prosecuted by individual state attorneys, in my opinion, and they're not.
0: Uh, Bird is requesting over two million dollars to hire twenty-seven more full-time
4: employees for this unit. W- where is that funding coming from? Oh, that's that's going to come from. Uh, yeah, that's going to come from general tax revenue. The Department of State is a very small agency in terms of the size of its budget, and they don't they don't they don't generate a whole lot of revenue on their own, like. You know, they're not like the Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles, for example. And so they're heavily dependent on either federal grants or general tax revenues. Now, the, the, the tax revenue situation in Florida is pretty good at the present time, so good that they've got a surplus in reserve of something like $20 billion, billion billion with a B, uh, which is a rainy day fund for hurricanes and other, you know, calamities that we can't anticipate. So finding $2 million uh, in a state Florida size will not be difficult.
0: Right, right. Billion yeah. with a B.
4: <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
0: Now, Steve, in your report, you mentioned that of the 20 arrests, four cases were dismissed and one case was convicted. How was that conviction or
4: convicted case handled? Um, I don't know the details on it. I'm trying to think it just happened in the last week or 10 days. It was a case in which I believe the accused pleaded pleaded no contest or pleaded guilty uh, but I don't know any of the other details
0: um, and and has there been has there been any more arrests since the
4: ones that were made last summer? No there have been no additional arrests but but I just I just realized uh, the case that I referred to that where there was a conviction was a woman in Tampa uh, who, uh i believe either pleaded no contest or pleaded guilty and paid a fine and court costs and that's it she might have had to perform some community service but but she was not you know incarcerated or anything so um just to recap for your listeners i mean uh these were people who are convicted felons and in some cases perhaps they were they had committed sex offenses which made them ineligible under amendment 4 to get their voting rights restored they went into an elections office or a tax collector or a high or a driver license office and and tried to register to vote anyway and were allowed to register to vote and they got a voter registration card and this is where it gets into a very gray area because state and local agencies that 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 uh, provide driver that provide voter registration services they do not independently investigate the backgrounds of people registering to vote. A person who registers to vote in Florida is swearing under penalty of perjury that they're telling the truth when they say they're eligible to vote. So that's, that's what these cases turn on. If you register to vote in Florida, uh, you know, you should be legally eligible to vote. That is, you should be 18 or over, a citizen of the United States, and your right to vote has not been abridged or revoked because of a particular felony conviction. And Steve, simple as that. And, and Steve, thank you so much for for clarifying
0: that. I think there are so many moving pieces that folks who are listening can be confused. But you, that was an excellent breakdown of what's going on. Especially considering, I, I remember I reported on this much earlier that there isn't like a statewide centralized system that is accessible to everyone. Correct? Is that is that still the case?
4: Yes, that's correct. And you you put your finger on the heart of the issue. This is why, um, you know, a person i'm using this as an illustration this is not a specific literal case but i guarantee you cases like this exist where a person uh was convicted of a felony and the felony conviction dates to the mid-1990s that's almost three decades ago that person may have moved out of state moved back to florida Uh, that person is 30 years older they have tried to put their that part of their life behind themselves and get on with their life in a productive meaningful way and the fact that they might owe nine hundred dollars to the Polk County Clerk of Court is something, of course, it's a it's a it's an obligation they should have paid at the time. They didn't have the money, they didn't pay the money, and thirty years have gone by, and the person has long since forgotten about that obligation. Yet that obligation under Florida law, you cannot, if you're a convicted felon, you shouldn't be registering to vote unless all your financial obligations have been resolved so that that that's a little bit of what's going on here too it, it, it's a terrible system in florida it is so uh, chopped up Balkanized uh, stratified where there's no central place where a person can go to find out the answers to these questions quite
0: quite unbelievable to be quite frank with you uh, stay with me Steve and Adam uh, I'm Wilkin Brutus this is a South Florida Roundup on WLRN I'm speaking with reporter Steve Bosquet and attorney Adam Goodman about the issue surrounding the Office of Election Crimes and Security join us 800-743-WLRN 800-743-9576 you can also tweet us at WLRN uh, Adam are you still there yeah Question. You represented Nathaniel Singleton, who is ineligible to vote because of the of a second degree murder conviction, but was issued a voter I.D. card by Broward County Supervisors of Elections Office twice.
5: Take us through this case. So I'd assume this case is much like a lot of the other cases is that and Steve kind of started touching on a, on a lot of it, actually, is that um, a lot of this was unorganized the there was a lot of moving parts the law in Florida changed on who can and cannot vote then um, once they changed the law the legislature didn't like what the voters thought should happen and they they tried to change it again and started making different factors as the uh, basically hurdles in place for people to vote so restitution court cost almost like a debtors type prison. Um, and a lot of people had a lot of different information. So a lot of uh, inmates who would not be eligible to vote either for uh, the amendments to the amendment or the actual amendment um, were told different things. So a lot of these people were, were told they could vote. They um, were recruited to vote by people who were volunteering. Um, they signed up to vote. Again, Steve kind of touched on it. If you go through the uh, statute, there, there's there's a checks and balance system in place to determine if someone is eligible to vote or not. So yes, they do go. They sign the paperwork. They ultimately swear that they are allowed to vote. In there, and as far as they are aware, that's supposed to be checked by the government. There's supposed to be people in place who look at that and and make a determination. If yes, they are eligible to vote, or no, they are not eligible to vote. And then they, if they are eligible, they they are sent. Uh, voter registration card. And so in, in a lot of these cases, uh, I'm assuming much similar to my client, he he got that card in the mail and you're assuming that the government's doing their job and they're saying, yes, you are eligible to vote. And these are people who then wanted to vote to uh, pick people who, who can kind of, you know, look after the interests of their community.
0: Yeah. And, and let's talk about your client client, let's segue there, take us into the courtroom per se. What's the defense you and other lawyers are making for your clients?
5: So, you know, again, Steve talked about it and the, I wish I was the brilliant attorney who who initially saw this and said it was a multi-jurisdictional issue. Um, but that was an issue that came up immediately um, by one of the, I wouldn't say co-defendants because they're not, they're all completely independent, But another attorney uh, filed a motion raising that legal challenge. And the cases have slowly uh, been dismissed. They started out in Miami-Dade County. Judge Milton Hirsch wrote an excellent order uh, describing why the case uh, should be dismissed and why uh, the Office of Statewide Prosecutor doesn't have jurisdiction. And slowly, as those motions have been filed, those cases have been starting to get dismissed. So we're kind of following that same path. It's a little unsure in the sense that uh, the office of Statewide prosecution is appealing those dismissals as far as I'm aware. So you know, those that are being appealed in Miami-Dade versus those being appealed in Broward, they might have different rulings at an appellate level. Those could possibly get brought to the Supreme Court. Again, a lot of these judges, you know, they're supposed to follow the law, but you know, you can never determine how a judge is going to to uh, rule on a matter so those dismissals could be temporarily they could be permanently uh upheld and and not been refiled but but that's the that's the avenue that that we're pursuing now we also filed a a similar motion to dismiss um we're finishing that up hopefully soon uh we had a change in judges a lot of the judges uh, rotate between december and january Mm -hmm. so new judge in and we're just getting everything together right now so the motion has been filed um, and we're gonna see how that goes,
0: yeah, there there's a lot of moving pieces here, Adam., uh, what other legal issues uh, what other legal legal issues might crop up from these voter fraud cases?
5: Um, so legal issues, I, I don't know what could possibly crop up. I mean, nothing surprises me at this point. Um, what had surprised me was, and again, Steve touched on this, um but, when this case came in, uh, Mr. Antonacci, who, as you talked about, a very polarizing figure, um, you know, we thought that was going to be a witness we were going to be able to depose and get a lot of information, not just about this, but the creation of, of the department and, and the prosecution. And he passed away, unfortunately, uh, you know, the day or two, right around the time these cases were filed. So we didn't even have discovery or, or reports or anything at that point that was so early in the litigation. Uh, What I ended up doing, um, we were going to do a massive investigation into, since my case is in Broward, the supervisor of elections department, as well as at the uh, attorney general uh, office of the attorney general level. So we made a uh, chapter 119 request, which is a public records request for basically a litany of documents from the uh, Broward uh, division of elections. They quoted us, you know, a fee and we paid it. And we've been sitting waiting on that. We're supposed to get a response this week, but it didn't happen. But I'm Mm. hoping next week where we we're we're looking at emails. We want to look at. Hey, Adam, I'm so sorry.
0: I hate to interrupt. Uh, Steve Bosquet is the editorial page editor for the Sun Sentinel and Adam Goodman is the criminal defense attorney and former chief of litigation. Thank you, guys. Still to come, the city of Riviera Beach in Palm Beach County is going through major redevelopment, part of a much-needed transformation. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Reimagine Riviera Beach. That's the campaign slogan residents are hearing across the city. The population of more than 30,000 residents has, has long grappled with social and political divisions, from poor governance to poverty. But as the waterfront majority black city enters its 100th year, a bevy of infrastructure and facility redevelopment projects aim to change the reputation of the city. Wayne Washington covers West Palm Beach, Riviera Beach, and issues of race for the Palm Beach Post. I spoke to Washington about his report that shows how Riviera Beach is trying to capitalize on its potential. When we think of major city transformations, we often look at the developments happening in West Palm Beach. Uh, The social and economic divisions have long been documented in Riviera Beach, the city next door. Uh, But there is a sort of transformation happening right now. What's the growing list of redevelopment projects reshaping Riviera Beach?
6: Well, as you know, um, I I detailed the the building of a new fire station, which is a significant development for the city. But in addition to that fire station, there's another fire station. There is going to be a new city hall. There is a new water treatment facility, which is likely to be the most expensive project the city undertakes, could cost well over $100 million and will lead to the creation of untold number of jobs and will solve for the city a problem uh, that it's had for a long time, a really aging water treatment facility. So that's a big development for the city.
0: And and most of those are located on the the, the Blue Heron Road, right?
6: They are, they are. That's still a a, a big artery in, in Riviera Beach.
0: This reimagined Riviera Beach campaign happening right now is led by various stakeholders in the community. This has been a long time in the making. You spoke to the city manager, Jonathan Evans. What did he say about some of the challenges the city has faced in the past 100
6: years? Well, you know, community buy-in was was long a problem in Riviera Beach. Um, I had a long talk with Jonathan Evans, and he told me that in the past there had been a real lack of tr- a lack of trust in the type of public private partnership that's necessary to get large scale projects done you know when you see these things happening in other cities it's not just that the government has decided to spend taxpayer money to do x y and z it's often the case that the government has partnered with a private entity to help that project get done and for various reasons uh, residents just didn't seem to trust that public-private partnership. And so that lack of trust and, and, and the lack of buy-in just kind of held things in place in Riviera Beach for a long time. And, and, and how is that different from other cities in the region that have faced similar challenges? Well, part, part of it is tied to race. Uh, Riviera Beach, as you know, is a majority black city. And uh, there is the feeling, among many, that if there is an opportunity for Riviera Beach to kind of get you know, kicked in the teeth, it'll get kicked in the teeth. Um, And that's not necessarily a a factor that we see in a lot of other cities. There's just more of a trust in the fact that public-private partnerships can get things done, where in Riviera Beach, there was this feeling that, you know, someone is out to help someone else, you know, just a a lot of suspicion that something underhanded was going to happen if, if big projects were undertaken and somehow they're, they're, they're moving past some of that.
0: So a lot more trust in this public-private partnerships happening right now in Riviera Beach. Now the city manager, Jonathan Evans, has received a lot of praise from residents for his leadership lately. Uh, how have he and the city council members been able to get buy-in from the community?
6: Well, part of it is that, that there is a new, um, several of the members of the city council are new, and so they replaced people who, um, who were there for a while and there while the city was struggling. And Jonathan Evans and this new city council, they do a lot of listening. Their meetings are epically long sometimes. I don't always get to them, but I'm often listening to them um, and watching them, watching the replay of them. And residents turn out. They're very engaged. They, turn, they, they attend those meetings They are not shy about speaking their piece about what they want to see in the city. Um, And the city council and Jonathan Evans, they listen. And uh, they've done a lot of listening to those residents. And they're taking some action now.
0: Yeah, they're listening to the residents, and that's, and that's clear, especially as they go through the master planning process, which is extremely important uh, when you're talking about investments. Riviera Beach is celebrating its 100th year. In your report, you highlighted some of the early history of the city, from the Oak Lawn Hotel to its deep Bahamian roots. Can you briefly describe what helped shape the city early on?
6: You know, it was really a lot of fun to do research, to learn the history of Riviera Beach. And I was aided by a a wonderful historical document that was put together in the mid 1970s. And it detailed Riviera Beach's founding. And a lot of its early residents came to see the city as a place that could be a resort community, a place where people would want to come and spend significant chunks of time, particularly when it was cold in the places where they were living. And and that was a, a a early part of Riviera Beach's development, and of course, commercial fisher uh, commercial fishermen were huge factors in the development of the city as well. Commercial fishing was a huge industry in Riviera Beach, and many of the city's founders were in fact commercial fishermen.
0: In the early days, uh, the '50s and '60s, the city made great strides in development. Uh, but progress fell short as time went on. You spoke to the city's first Black City manager, Ronald Davis. What did he say contributed to the city's shortcomings?
6: Mr. Davis, um, I, I ran into Mr. Davis at a community center uh, recently, and he and I talked, and I told him I was working on this story, and, and uh, and of course, he reminded me that he was the first Black City um, manager in Riviera Beach, and he told me that, uh, he reminded me that he had been hired on a split vote, I think it was something like three to two, and it was along racial lines. And he said that that racial division um, between white residents and black residents, and even um, between some black residents and other black residents, that those divisions plagued the city for much of its early years.
0: Now let's talk about some of those challenges. It's hard not to discuss the historical racial rift that divided white folks in Singer Island to the east. And the black folks in the West uh, describe that rift. What are some of the, you know, factors that contributed to that?
6: Well, of course, it's you know, income and, and race. Uh, those are those are the the over, you know, overriding issues there. As you know, uh, Singer Island is is, uh, is significantly affluent. It's mostly white, um, and and yet on the west side, most of those residents are black. They're considerably less affluent. Um, you know, poor. And crime is a problem on on the western side of the city. And so you just have lingering distrust. Litigation and staff turnover, those remain challenges for Riviera Beach as well. Sometimes we don't see high-profile officials, uh, employees of the city, merely leave for other jobs, They'll either get fired and then sue, <laughs> and that's uh, and then of course the lawsuit generates headlines. I'm writing about it. Television's reporting on it, and it's a, it's not a good look for the city. Even even if the the lawsuit is legit, even if the lawsuit is is defended well for the city, it's still not a great look. Um, and that's something you know the current the former police chief is suing the city. The city manager Jonathan Evans. Previously sued the city after he had been terminated a few years ago after only six months on the job. And so you see, you know, the city is trying to make those steps forward, but it does have challenges as every city does as every city does.
0: Yeah, I went to Forest Hill High School in West Palm Beach, which is about a a 20-minute drive from Riviera Beach, and some of those challenges I remember even as a high school student. Uh, But it is, again, reassuring to see some improvement that's happening right now on a large scale. Wayne, the city manager officials and residents have shown a sense of urgency uh, that I haven't seen since high school to keep the redevelopment uh, momentum going. Uh, What is making Riviera Beach an attractive place for developers to invest in right now?
6: It's, it, it can't, developers will not, they will not fail to notice that the city is putting money and effort behind improvement. If you're a developer, you wanna open up a large business, you wanna build an apartment complex or some housing project, you come to believe that you have a partner in the, in the government of Riviera Beach. If you come to believe that, then you may move forward with your project, you might be more willing to move forward with your project where before you might not have felt that way, if you, if you feel like you've got good partnership and you see that the city is making moves, you might say to yourself, well, why not, why not make my development project happen in Riviera Beach? Wayne Washington covers West Palm Beach, Riviera Beach, and issues of
0: race for the Palm Beach Post. Wayne, thank you so much for your time.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe, Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor for news. Mateus Sanchez is the digital editor. The vice president of radio and shows technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated.
4: WLRN Public Media.